Here's Johnny. I'll be back. And you will know my name is the Lord. I'm walking here. I'm walking here. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Box Office Pulp, your one-stop podcast for movies, madness, and moxie. I'm your host, Cody, and joining me today to discuss all things Lovecraft, Richard Stanley, and the color out of space are my Squamous co-host, Mike. Say hello, Mike. I'm an amorphous flesh monster. Well, we already knew that. And Jamie. Say hello, Jamie. Am I the only one kind of wanting a plushie of that weird jellyfish thing Nathan finds in the shower? Yes. I feel like you could make that kawaii very easily. There's some googly eyes on it. It was too translucent. It freaked. I don't like translucent things. Uh, are you there? Are you not there? Pick a side. I, it's it's covered in shower hair, which is what I don't like. <laughs> that's that's not good either. Particularly Nick Cage shower hair. Here's the yeah. thing. It looks a lot like a big amorphous blob of cum. And <laughs> really, I, yeah. Don't, that was not the impression I got. <laughs> I, you know what I did, and it may, it may have been Nick Cage's come, and it just attacked him. Um, and I don't trust <laughs> rogue <laughs> semen. That is a horrifying no, idea. Like the meteorite causes all the cum left around the household to come alive. Father. Oh, I mean, I'm sure. I mean, think about like all of our drains. You can't make me. <laughs> it's in there waiting. Well, that's why I rent instead of own. That's somebody else's problem once this lease is up, baby. <laughs> oh, then it's just your cum mixing with other people's cum. Forming, like, oh, that's how the blob starts. We're making a slow homunculus. This is a weird, abstract opening to this episode. We went from zero to cum jokes very quickly. You gotta Good. get them out of the way. Good. You're yeah. welcome. You are fucking welcome, people at home. <laughs> The important thing is this entire conversation would horrify H.P. Lovecraft to his core. So I think good. we're doing a good job. Well, it's black yeah, man's all those fluids. Oh, uh, now he's even more upset. That does bring Harumph. me to my first point. I'm getting on subject, Mike. Don't stop me now. Harumph. Harumph. <laughs> all right, so we've got a shit ton of Lovecraft-inspired films. That's basically the hot word in horror, right? If you're making a movie, say, oh, this is a little Lovecraftian or it's Lovecraft-inspired. Which isn't necessarily wrong. Lovecraft had such a big impact on the genre. You know, pretty much every modern horror movie has a small little bit of him in so somewhere. But it's kind of odd we don't see direct adaptations of his work. So that's kind of the weird spot for the Colorado space to be in. This is one of his stories actually adapted directly to the screen. And I was trying to just go through my head some of the reasons why that might be. And the first one was probably, boy... Lovecraft is a real shitty person, and if you're doing a direct version of any of his movies, you just have to answer nonstop questions, probably from fans about Lovecraft, which could be awkward. Yeah, like, how I many feel... ways can you say Lovecraft was a bad person, but his ideas were pretty entertaining? It's kind of like the, uh, is the sex scene going to be in it question Muschietti had to deal with, but for racism? Like, yeah. No, no, we're not going to do that. Stop asking. I'm going to be honest, I'm pretty sure when it comes to adapting books that are like over 100 years old, it's always just an assumption that the writer's probably racist. True, but Lovecraft takes it to a different level. Like, you imagine sometimes that if famous authors were brought to the present and they were put in a better environment, they might not be so shitty? Lovecraft, I'm 100% certain if you picked that guy out of his time and made him live in the year 2020, he'd be wearing like a Trump hat and talking about how Mexicans deserve to be in cages. <laughs> But here's the thing, though. I don't think most people either know or care, because unlike uh, a lot of other authors back then, other than Lovecraft's, I won't say famous, poem that we will not repeat the name of, um, unlike other authors, you know, there's no, um, there's not a lot of it that creeps into the books. It's not like, um, you know, well, we have to creatively edit Huckleberry Finn and things like that. Whenever you're adapting certain certain other works, there there's an instance or two where he'll introduce like black characters or foreign characters where the language is swarthy. <laughs> Even more repulsive than that, like you'll find terrible ways to express himself when it comes to these guys. And there's always the constant idea of you know the foreigner is evil or just an outside force that is unclean. So the subtext in these movies is going to be a little tricky, I think, in current days. Like, the audience probably doesn't want to hear the message of, hey, someone's from a different country, they're probably evil. 
Uh, Unless you make it about SEAL Team 6. (laughs) I would say the way you sidestep that is Lovecraft's racism was a malignant tumor growing on his brain that infected uh, his outlook on the world and his writing. That wasn't the root cause of his outlook or his writing. Like the things that Lovecraft was tapping into are very universal fears. It's yeah. just because of his upbringing and the way he chose to live his life, he he chose to express that fear of the unknown in the worst possible ways. And even Lovecraft admitted that because Lovecraft ended up renouncing a lot of his racist uh, beliefs in the last years of his life whenever he actually got the fuck out of Boston for the first time <laughs> yes. and traveled and realized well, that there's a world did not have horns on it on their <laughs> yeah he was very regretful it's, it's there's a difference between I think Lovecraft like the way Lovecraft's racism occasionally crept into his stories and the way Orson Scott Card eventually used his bigotry in his stories like, it's not really, you know, in Ender's Game, but eventually he started making allegories that his writing was specifically about that. Lovecraft's writing was never about that. It just kind of made its way in because he was an angry, bad person. And I'm going back to your point, Mike, from before. I think you're right, too, about the time the author lived. Because everyone has a base expectation, I think, that if you're a writer in the 30s or 20s or 40s, whatever there's probably going to be something that we don't find on the level today. Whereas like someone who was writing in the eighties and nineties, we find out uh, they're bad people makes it real hard to swallow their current works. Like that guy's still alive. uh, It's too close to home. Yeah. It's hard to support the living. (laughs) That's why I only support the dead. That's a weird ending to Bride of Frankenstein. <laughs> Just Frankenstein, it, I file a single payer! <sighs> As he switches the volcano explode switch. But uh, going back. Dr. Frankenstein's last Patreon update is We Belong Dead. <laughs> <laughs> hey, he never made that movie, he promised. <laughs> um. I paid $20 for an exclusive look at the monster. <laughs> <laughs> He just kept uh, saying something talk. about personal problems, and he disappeared. Re- real talk here. Uh, when I die, please someone just update all of my accounts to say, He belonged dead. All of them. I want that to be like my Twitter banner and everything. Go to your promise. Thank you. You're a good friend. <laughs> we will make that on your tombstone. Thank you. Um, going back to what you were saying at the at the beginning, Cody, about how... Th- about the fact this is there's been Lovecraft adaptions, obviously. Uh Dagon, mm-hmm. Reanimator, blah blah blah, tons of stuff. Color out of space is truly the only actual adaption of a Lovecraft story. Because all of the stories all, all any media that's been made that's super Lovecrafting as far as films go aren't Lovecraft adaptions. They're things like uh The Void or Annihilation, especially Annihilation. Yeah, uh, Stanley was talking about that in interviews, basically said, yeah, this is, <laughs> Annihilation is a lot of a, the color out of space, but it's not the color out of space. Yeah. Which is where he had to jump in, because in his mind, hey, this is kind of low-hanging fruit, it's a family in, like, one location, more or less, so it's something attainable for him to do, and it allowed him to do Lovecraft as is, without having to dress it up in some way or change half the ideas. Which is, honestly, tricky now, because so many movies have been inspired by Lovecraft. You know, when you go back to the source after everyone knows the spinoffs, suddenly the original ideas don't seem as impressive. Oh, it's the John Carter effect. Yeah, they very much so. It's like, kind of the same problem that happened to The Exorcist after a while, where it its influence was so widely felt that even, even the studio wasn't really sure how to do more things with The Exorcist after that first movie. Or, uh... Hell, Guillermo del Toro's At the Mountains of Madness pretty much is dead, according to del Toro, because he felt Prometheus got too close to some of the ideas he wanted to do. That's okay, only we saw Prometheus. You can still make it, del Toro. <laughs> I got real mad about Bloomberg jumping out, because I realized, like, God damn it, that man could have bought us, like, three and a half At the Mountains of Madnesses, and instead he just embarrassed himself nationwide. He just made YouTube very difficult for a couple of months. Ah, Your mind goes to silly places, Cody. I just really want At the Mountains of Madness. <laughs> you have the script, at least. That's true. That's fun. And we've seen some, uh, like, maquettes and stuff. Like, uh, Del Toro actually had, like, one of the big old albino penguins 
sculpted up at one point. What's fucked cool. up is uh, after the Oscar win, Del Toro technically had the power to get this done and chose to do nothing. I don't think, uh, I don't know. Maybe with it making a shit ton of money, you could make the, the case that horror, R-rated hard horror could make big bucks, but I still think that's an uphill battle. If he couldn't do it before with James Cameron behind him and Tom with the, Cruise... With the money he made with his R-rated horror movie and the Oscar? Shape of Water, while very successful critically, I don't think made a super, super huge amount of money. Well, it wasn't exactly a high budget. It still made money. Yeah. And there's plenty of other the R-rated that's horror that's made a shit of ton of money, like so it's kind of a million point. What I'm saying is Del Toro chose to do nothing. We're getting a Pinocchio. He's that noir. That's, that, that seems to be where his heart's at now. I'm very excited about these things. As am I. I'm just saying. I'm bitter. Well, that's Do your, your adventure, thing. Frankenstein. Do, just, God damn it. Kill Mike Mignola. <laughs> Mike, is that your spec script? Yes. <laughs> uh, Hellboy, save me. <laughs> but, but you are right. Uh, about killing Mike Mignola? <laughs> the man has yes. a family. Oh, they don't. Hercules must be slain. (laughs) But yeah, it is so difficult trying to reverse engineer uh, what makes a love trap story great and what what things would translate so well to movies since it's all become so diluted by pop culture at this point. Like As badly as we all want to see it, I do not envy the person who gets charged with finally doing Call of Cthulhu as a major motion picture. Well, at this point... Stanley said this too. Cthulhu is no longer a big scary creature. Like he's kind of become a cuddly mascot for dorky things. And people, when they think of Lovecraft, they think of you know tentacles and slime and insanity. We, we've seen a bunch of video games that have been inspired by the ideas of Lovecraft, where it no longer feels like a unique thing. Yeah, I remember so, Stanley saying something to that effect. Like that's one of the things that attracted him to Color of Out of Space is it's a super Lovecrafty project with none of the cliched stuff that people might roll their eyes at. Yeah, yeah, it's one of Lovecraft's outlier stories because it's him doing an actual alien, unlike any well, of his I, old god stuff. There, there's two big facets, I think, of Lovecraft that don't necessarily make it to the big screen. One is a lot of his stories do feature witchcraft and black rituals and that kind of stuff. When people think of Lovecraft, they don't necessarily focus on that aspect at all. You know, they just think of like elder gods and fish monsters. So there's that, but then there's the much harder idea of cosmic horror and how powerless human beings are in the scope of things. I, I don't know how you necessarily express that in film. So uh, it's hard to it's hard to do that one. Like, how do you make a movie where your characters are essentially powerless to the whole thing, but still make it feel like they have agency? And no one's and, really and to, tried, which is unfortunate. I mean, uh, uh, certain people have outside of Lovecraft adaptions, but no yeah. one's ever tried in regards to just adapting a Lovecraft story. We've gotten some... Some are more straightforward. Some are, you know, the reanimator types, which are just kind of offshoots. Mm-hmm. But I mean, from beyond, I thought actually, other than its tone, actually came pretty close to capturing the cosmic horror concept for the most part. Just it was, it went about it in a purposely more silly way, schlocky way. <laughs> yeah, but that that's one of the things I do enjoy about this version of the color out of space. I mean, when you look at all the events here, they don't beat the color. They don't make any meaningful stand against the color or even have like a true plan on facing it. Everyone's plan is more or less try to find ways to not die or figure out what's happening. And most of them, it doesn't end well. Like these people truly are powerless against this force. They don't understand it fully. They don't know how to fight it. They don't know what they're doing. And they just get picked off and destroyed which is an interesting way to do the movie. <laughs> like, I think most people are accustomed to, oh, my main hero is going to put up some sort of fight against the villain. Not, oh, Nick Cage is going to go insane for two hours and then just get melted by a beam of light. <laughs> well, it's definitely not my uh, favorite uh, type of horror story. It is kind of refreshing to see a salt-the-earth horror ending again. Oh, yeah. No, the house is gone, everyone's gone, everything is ruined forever. <laughs> oh, it's just this hey, horrible event that takes place that's beyond understanding, which that's just, that's pure Lovecraft right there. Mm-hmm. As, as long as we're touching on the ending, this was another area I kind of wanted to explore. Because in my mind, like, the most Lovecraft thing in the world is reading a story where the end is, like, one line in italics that has a twist. 
as a kid, I had like a collection of Lovecraft stories. And that was the first thing that struck me. Like every story had to end on like a one line twist where it's like, and there was something in the cave making noises. And for some reason, this is an italic. So, you know, it's spooky and scary. I was the color out of space all alone. Yeah, right. Yeah, and it turns out freak. the bones weren't me. Ah. So in my mind, like a Lovecraft story really should have that kind of ending. There should be some sort of, oh, things aren't resolved. And the main character is still freaking out about the thing they saw happen. Like if they were writing down their experiences, they'd be writing it with an exclamation point in italics, which we kind of get here. I mean, we don't get the manic energy, but we have the older survivor looking back on his experiences dropping the cigarette into the water and basically talking about how he'll never drink the water from the reservoir and just praying that it's deep enough to bury this evil forever. Like, that's a nice way of saying the Lovecraftian idea of, well, we didn't really do anything to stop this evil. We're just really hoping it doesn't care to finish us off. <laughs> it's just I, sleeping. And I, love, and I love the idea that all of this happens and the world just keeps on turning. Like, they're still going to build their reservoir. They're still going to run water through there. Uh, everything's going to go on as though this family was never here in the first place, which even though that's not really taking things to a cosmic scale, that's just more of an example of everyday indifference from the powers that be. That is absolutely Lovecraft. Oh yeah. Or whether it's the mayor or God, no one cares if you live or die. And it's just the idea of an unknown horror happening at, if it can't be explained or comprehended comprehended appropriately, that let's just pretend it didn't happen. Just ignore it completely. So it's just this question that's out there with a cause that could come back up at any time. And I would say with this version, since cancer is such a prominent theme in this version of the story, you could kind of look at it from that angle too. This one person has survived this cancerous thing that they don't quite understand, has been exercised, and it's been buried, I, I don't know, consider that like a, some sort of analogy for chemotherapy or surgery, whatever, blocking this thing. But they can't say it won't come back. This person's living in a form of regression right now, where they're, they're just praying that everything's going to stay the way it is and that this threat won't return. But they don't really have the power to say it won't or the power to stop it if it does. Yeah. Which kind of gives it that lurking threat feel. And one sidebar here I was thinking about was, when did we make the switch to having horror stories, horror movies, I should say, that end with a big question mark. Because I'm thinking back to the movies in the 30s, when you know, they kill King Kong or they kill Dracula. Those movies have ended. Like, the, it's all over. Threat's gone. You can maybe be a little pensive about things, but you know the evil has been lifted. Then when we get to stuff in the 50s, they suddenly start telling you, oh, we have to start keeping a watch on the skies. But it does. it feels more optimistic in my mind in the 50s. And some point between there and now, we got to stories where you could just have a very nihilistic ending where... Nope, none of this mattered. There was a lot of suffering for no reason, and there's very little chance we would ever survive if this happened again. Well, I would, tr I would turn it up mostly to political upheaval and social upheaval. But by the time we get to the 50s, we're, we're post-World War World War II, so there's, you know, keep watching the skies, but it's in a, because we'll kick its ass sort of way. <laughs> exactly, um, It's yeah. very, like, patriotic. Even um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is like, hey, don't fall asleep. It kind of has the sense of, oh, we caught this in time. If, if we're vigilant, we'll save it. Once you start getting into the 70s and then into the 80s and up to now, you can slowly watch the nihilism of the endings of horror kind of start to take over where it did become mm, the evil's not really dead. Like, it's when you get the villain always coming back. I mean, I think appropriately... You bring up Dracula, you know, being very clearly killed at the end of the original movie. And then you get to 70s Dracula, where it's like, oh, here is he? And it's like, but it's a Dracula movie. He's usually defeated in the end. But There's always are... a Dracula ring to be uncovered after the credits. Yeah, but now it's, now things are slightly different. And then you get, like, you know, the, the Blob remake. Well, even the original Blob, I believe that's one that ends with a question mark over the title. Yeah, that ends, uh, ends in a question mark. And then or... Beware the Blob was a piece of shit. But that's that's why we story. don't talk about that one, Mike. God damn it. Uh, anyways. question mark was a warning. But when you're talking about it, I, I think actually, let's focus on the late 60s. Because there we have stuff like Rosemary's Baby. Uh, clearly not really a happy ending. Best case scenario, she'll Rosemary will be a happy mom to the Antichrist who destroys the world. Pretty much. Worst, worst case scenario, she's a bad mom to the Antichrist who destroys the world. Um, she's going to be a things, good mom. 
Oh, she will, but it's the Antichrist. Or we have Night of the Living Dead, which is really everyone in the house dies, all of their bickering destroyed them, and, you know, the only black guy in the house gets killed by a bunch of good old boys. So yeah, right around late 60s, 70s is when things suddenly made a turn where <laughs> a Lovecraftian ending makes more sense for a movie. Funny how that took only a couple of decades to catch on. It was ahead well, of its time. I think that's no coincidence. That's when, uh, about the time Lovecraft started catching on big time. Like, it started being read around college campuses and stuff. That was just something that was in people's hearts be- between everything that was happening. Not to mention that, like Lewis Carroll, like, despite the man never using drugs in his life, his work works very well for high people. Whoa. <laughs> all that. All right, all right. Everyone, everyone, fess up. Have any of us watched The Color Out of Space while on any sort of inebriant? Yes. I knew it. You're going to jail. <laughs> we just pull off our fingers sting. and lasers come out and point at Jamie. I I tear off my mustache and underneath it is a cop mustache. It's a completely different style of mustache. Oh. Waxed. I just totally. deflate oh. because I was just a dummy. <laughs> uh, Mike was the a wire the entire time. He wasn't a person. <laughs> he was a camera. <laughs> I knew it. This whole this whole operation's been a sting. <laughs> I like how we jumped entirely over the idea of Mike was a tulpa and just went to, no, he was recording equipment, cleverly disguised as a man. So I'm just imagining Mike as the inflatable pilot from <laughs> Oh, here's a fun one. So do you remember the DVDs of Airplane that came out uh, late 90s? There was a mail-away coupon inside of them where you could send in for your own inflatable pilot. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> I was I was I, real mad I never did that. Like, I still I have tried. the sheet somewhere. Did you, Oh, you didn't get it? Cody, if I had gotten the inflatable pilot <laughs> from Airplane, do you think I wouldn't have brought it up? you think it wouldn't be next to me right now? Yeah, it wouldn't have changed the course of his life, Cody. <laughs> I'd be I'd such say, a better Mike person. Mike paused when he was explaining that, and I thought he was going to say, do you think I'd be podcasting right now if I had an inflatable it's true, pilot? Sure, you think I'd fucking be friends with you people? <laughs> I'd be whining and dining in a penthouse somewhere. With my inflatable pussy. <laughs> Just me and my inflatable friends. Mike Man gay for balloons? Question mark. In a hot air balloon. I'd be in the fucking... Uh, just, a fucking Mike, are you cheating somewhere. on your love with a hot air balloon? Just me living yeah. in the Goodyear blimp. <laughs> my inflatable my friends. Character. My inflatable I love the life. idea of you living lifestyles of the rich and famous with just an inflatable co-pilot following you around the house. You both have champagne for no reason. It's a Tuesday afternoon. <sighs> Jamie, I wanted to ask you what it was like watching this movie. Hi. But now I can't get my head off of the idea of this inflatable co-pilot and Mike having a much better life than they are right now. This scenario it is what it was like watching The Color Out of Space. <laughs> That makes sense. Okay, okay, I'm going to bring the mood back down. Cut to the current day. Mike chose not to get the inflatable pilot. This is this is like a movie where a character flips a coin. You get to see both directions of what could have happened, heads or tails. In this version, Mike doesn't get the pilot. He is sitting here doing this stupid show and miserable. The inflatable pilot is still packed up in a warehouse somewhere, being forgotten until eventually someone burns it down for the insurance money. Oh, it probably melted from the heat of being in the warehouse. Yeah. Just guys, congealed guys, you know, somewhere. Ugh. It may cost a, several thousands of dollars at this point, but I'm sure those are available on eBay. We can make the dream happen. Jamie, describe to me watching the color out of space while high while I browse eBay. <laughs> How do we get here? Uh, absolutely terrifying. Uh, what was great <laughs> is I was watching that with my girlfriend, who was completely sober, but has very, very visceral reactions <laughs> to body horror uh, in any horror movie. So we were both just terrified for two hours. How did she handle, one, the llamas, two? Uh, we should have announced spoilers. Spoilers, spoilers. The the color is not dead. Everyone else is. Uh, how did she handle the llamas or the mother-child combo deal? Uh, they screamed at the top of their lungs three times in that movie during the cat scare during the llama scare and during the mother fusion God, so all, all the moments fusion. richard stanley wanted the audience to go oh she's reabsorbing him when that moment happened in the movie theater i was sitting there watching the film the light hits them and my mind goes 
oh man, it'd be so fucked up if they just got mashed into one being. Wouldn't that be disturbing? And then I went, too bad we won't see that. And I just assumed the movie is going to be like, oh, they're a burnt pile of ashes. Then it immediately cuts to, oh god, what do we do with them? Put them on the couch! And they're just being mushed into one person. I went, oh, well, I was wrong. Good job, movie. My god, she's become simultaneously a metaphor for helicopter parenting and cancer. (laughs) (laughs) it does it all it works on like nine levels that's how seriously Stanley took the fusion (laughs) it fuses metaphors it's something that I was I was not even though it's Stanley so you should expect metaphors but I also kind of just thought that Stanley was adapting a Lovecraft story and there's not a lot of metaphor in Colorado Space the actual story, it's just more of a post-investigative, hey, this weird fucking thing happened, isn't this crazy? But the amount of shit Stanley managed to cram into this really impressed me because it's both incredibly faithful, but also it's very new in comparison. Like, it goes off in its own direction, but he he takes it into its own direction by essentially going backwards. Like, this is how, this is where everyone kind of ended up in the story. So let's work backwards to bring metaphor and allegory to their fates. It ends up becoming a story of like a, a family disintegration. Like I, I'm so taken with uh, Nathan Cage's character who I've been calling Clark Griswold since I've watched the movie because he's just doing <laughs> Clark Griswold. Like he's fucking well, Clark he Griswold. Trump. But he, he drinks he, milk like Griswold does. Like, he's Clark Griswold in that he he's obsessed with appearing that he knows what he's doing, but he has no goddamn idea. He's just kind of a nerd who somehow f- figured out how to have a wife and kids. And all he wants is just some, some order and to, to just appear as in control. Like, the, the fact the family keeps prodding him over the clear, clear notion he has no idea what the fuck he's doing by running a farm. <laughs> With his alpacas. With his just, alpacas, yeah. and but just the fact that the color takes like takes that and then slowly starts to change him. Like Cage going manic cage within a scene and like snapping back and forth between Clark Griswold and then full cage. What's interesting to me is he's actually utilizing his full cage performance to show a change in the character to turn into something terrifying. Instead of just going for, for comedy. Although I will say, in my theater, it was a bit of a letdown. Because anytime Cage would yell for anything, the people in my audience were, like, waiting for it and would laugh. So I, I imagine that would ruin a lot. It's yeah. Point, yeah, it's gotten to the point now where people will attend Nick Cage movies because they just want to laugh along with Nick Cage doing big performances. Regardless of what the movie itself is trying to say. So that, that kind of sucked. <laughs> it's honest. very frustrating, yeah. I'm actually, I as much as I would have liked a little better. As much as I would have liked to have seen this in a theater, I'm, I knew that was going to happen, so I was kind of glad and almost that it didn't play near me. Yeah, the memification of Nick Cage has been kind of heartbreaking over the past few years, because as genuinely amusing as it is seeing Nicolas Cage lose his shit, like, it seems to have, people seem to have gotten the idea that Cage just sucks and is a crazy person who throws tantrums on sets and they just have to be filming or happen to be filming or something and no cage knows what he's doing yeah Yeah, that's still if you you listen to the interviews from like the the rest of the crew on the movie like no one talks about nick cage being an asshole like he made some acting choices that were extreme but that's what you pay for when you ask for nick cage he was doing his job yeah it's never like uh one of the special effects artists mentioned you know they have the job of shooting blood cannons in Nick Cage's face, and they had to do that multiple times for the scene where he attacks the llamas. And that's a point where you think if you have, like, an asshole actor, that's when they get in your face, and fuck, Cage just took that. You know, whatever. And, mind you, that job sucks. Like, I can't imagine how shitty it is to be on stage all day while people shoot fake blood into your eyeballs at, like, fastball speeds. I can't imagine anyone is truly excited for that job. Uh, there, there's a moment in, uh, the behind the scenes features on the Blu-ray where they just briefly catch Nicolas Cage before uh, Stanley Lee rolls film, just singing his jaunty acting song. 
Like, he, he has, like, a pirate jig he sings. The director calls cut. The director calls action. Acting, acting, acting. Cage <laughs> okay, seems like a delight to be <laughs> But uh, what I was saying was, uh, that's a, a, mastery is really never more present than in this movie. Like Mike was saying earlier, it, the way he bounces between both of his performance modes, it's like if you had seen... Like, by some miracle, some director got Al Pacino to bounce between Godfather Pacino and Hua. Because <laughs> most actors are surprisingly not self-aware about those kind of transformations they make in their career. Yeah. But Cage can turn off modern Cage like a light switch. I've never seen an actor more aware of the various eras of his career. Well, wasn't it on, like, the last Spider-Man, like, the director had to go to and be like, okay, this is the level of cage we're going for, and cage was like, oh, yeah, I totally know what you mean. Oh, you want me to bring the cage, huh? <laughs> I can what level are we doing door. here? What's, what's so impressive about his performance in, in Color Out of Space, though, is he does it mid-sentence, and he switches back and forth be, be, before the sentence ends. Like, I don't know how he actually pulls that off. That's such a strange energy to be bringing to a performance and then just be... Like, the confusion on the other actors' faces almost feels real. Oh, there's an incredible deleted scene of Cage just being weird for five minutes. Like, he, he starts doing jumping jacks and doing a handstand. And look, seeing make those changes, sometimes with a complete change in voice, sometimes not. Like, it, it becomes very disorienting very quickly. It's amazing to re-watch this movie and try to track each character's subtle transformations the moment the meteor hits. It's, it's almost like watching the thing. Like you, you keep watching, especially Cage, to see like, okay, in what moments is he just being Nathan, and what moments is he going off the rails? I think my favorite moment of Stanley's um, contribution to adapting the story was uh, the tomatoes, which in the in the actual book more or less is just an oddity like oh they the they grow huge but they all taste sour just a strange thing that happens in the middle of the story they're all tomacos um <laughs> wow that's a deep cut um it was always looked oddly delicious to me but anyway um <laughs> it oh did. god mike no no I, i'm not saying it's right um but in the movie what's interesting to me is stanley taking that little plot element that's just a throwaway in the book and those vegetables actually have meaning to nathan so it's part of him losing his goddamn mind like that's that's supposed to be proof like he's picking them he's listening to a podcast it's explaining how to farm and shit they've all been telling him he can't do it so they look huge he thinks he did such a good job and he can finally prove he's doing great and they taste like shit and he just D fucking trucks right like right there yeah we're, if we're talking favorite mo moments uh mine has to be when they cut to tommy chong sitting in his trailer now basically a glowing zombie man corpse <laughs> and they just have him giving exposition on a tape recorder that's playing at variable speeds <laughs> just just wonderful to hear tommy chong deadpanning lines like it's just a color. Like, boy, that I have a weak spot. Anytime people just start fucking around with audio speeds, movies, <laughs> I don't know what it is, but that always gets me. I love it. So this movie really had me there. And to just have, of all people, no one thinks of Tommy Chong as like a real serious actor. You know, his most famous roles are kind of jokey stoner ones. And it starts that way here. And then by the end, you realize, oh, this guy knew a lot, but he just didn't do anything. Like, he just kind of accepted his fate and died. And Tommy, have that character explain the movie in very serious, weird terms. From beyond the grave. Tommy Chong saying HP Lovecraft shit is my favorite thing in the universe. I know. I never knew that that's what was missing from my life. <laughs> I love how Ezra was just based on a squatter who lived near the castle. Richard Stanley spent the past few years <laughs> the haunted castle he moved to so he could record paranormal events, mind you. Hold on. I somehow never picked up on this. 
part of Stanley's life. I didn't realize he just lived in a haunted castle. Oh yeah, he he stumbled onto this while he was searching for the Holy Grail because he was tracking <laughs> down Nazi archaeologists who had gone underground. Yep. And he just stumbled onto that castle and decided he had to move from London to this isolated castle. How so much money did this, this man business. make for being fired from Moreau? A lot. That oh, Stanley is Indiana Jones. Fun fact, on set, him and Nick Cage would have conversations about their adventures trying to find the Holy Grail. <laughs> They're mutually exclusive. <laughs> Why isn't Richard Stanley just doing that as a movie series? Like, he doesn't even need to adapt horror films or work hey, with the budget. Hey, he has made some documentaries on his search. Oh, I'm yeah, waiting for Werner Herzog to make a documentary about Stanley's life, because it's going to fucking happen. Oh, my. The two of them would murder each other. But uh, apparently this old burnout old hippie dude who was squatting near Stanley's castle, like, had a bunch of H.P. Lovecraft books with him. And Stanley swears this dude was 100% convinced that those were, like, actual texts of things that happened. (laughs) (laughs) He had no idea they were fake. So there was just this old burnout hippie talking about the Elder Gods, man. Now they were coming to reclaim the earth. And this can only Stanley happen to Stanley. Fell in love with this dude, so that—that's why Ezra exists. All right, if I was a burnout hippie and I thought the world of H.P. Lovecraft was real, I'm pretty sure I'd just kill myself then. Like, I'd be terrified. The why would you live in that world? At any moment, everything could just go the worst. Maybe that's why he was a vagrant. Like he just gave up on life. I would never get on a boat. Certainly, God no. no one going going back to what we were talking about earlier with. Uh, the family dynamic and the choice to flesh out the characters significantly more uh, than they were in the short stories. Because if there's one thing that H.P. Lovecraft is not known for, it's its <laughs> richly drawn characters. Yeah. I'm not entirely sure H.P. Lovecraft ever met a person. <laughs> Listen, I, I personalities just, are I, just indescribable. <laughs> <laughs> That's the real unknown horror. Personalities are as monstrous as the monsters he couldn't quite put on page. I just like the idea of Lovecraft being castle freak and just like passing manuscripts through a hole in the wall, never actually meeting a person. H.P. <laughs> Lovecraft is castle freak. Come uh, right down to the rags. But, uh, Stanley said something that really captured my imagination because I've never heard someone adapting an old author's work talk about it like this he said his goal with the color out of space wasn't necessarily to update or revise lovecraft but to have a conversation with him and to bring what he had experienced with his own family and his own life to this long dead author and say okay if you met my family what kind of story would you write about them and that's such an interesting approach. Like, again, like it's not updating the story. It's reimagining the story if Lovecraft had empathy and people in his life. Yeah. Which I think absolutely tracks because all of those Lovecraft sensibilities are still being applied directly to emotion and character relationships. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm starting at a typo in my notes where I typed love cart and I can't get past that. <laughs> Love cards, baby. Love, the love cards. Is that like an HP Lovecraft uh, subscription service where you get a love cart every month? <laughs> Each package more unknowable than the last. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a thesaurus, but all the ba- boring words are torn out. This just is a note that says, "Get a job." Oh. Why is this one just 10,000 pieces of paper that say non-Euclidean? Like, what? what? Hey, this this just says taint. Oh. But as long as we're talking about what Stanley brought to Lovecraft, more so than just being in a conversation, we've touched on this before, but the idea of cancer is all over this story. And I don't think Lovecraft ever specifically tried to make one of his stories an analogy for something along those lines. No, In this case... Richard Stanley had, you know, that kind of history. His mother passed away very slowly from cancer. And the two of them were pretty close. He would read her Lovecraft stories. I was listening to an interview today where he was talking about how he told his mom, oh, I'm going to be doing an adaption of The Color Out of Space. And she just told him, it'll never happen. It's going to fall through like everything else. 
And he kind of mentioned that, you know, when people are on their deathbeds, we typically don't remember them in the nicest ways. Like people who are dying aren't the sympathetic angels that we want to remember or maybe do remember. Things are rough when you're on your deathbed and, and people act out in ways you wouldn't expect and they can be ugly. Yeah. And I think that's a, a huge part of this story. You know, characters that 99% of their life were very nice people get into this situation where they become tainted by this weird force they can't comprehend and it makes them act out in, in jarring, unexpected, horrible, ugly ways, which is unpleasant, but uh, kind of a sad truth, I think. You know, if you're preparing for death, you can't think of it in hallmark terms. And very much about the the false faces you kind of put on in in the in the face of face of that and face of kind of like pre-morning and the the difficulties like you can't really get angry with the person so you just kind of smile through it and, and there's a very strong falsehood to the family in in the movie where you know th there's always the on the plot line of like, oh, the the family goes out, you know, from the city and, and onto a farm or something, and the kids are, are really unhappy. It's very rare you see the parents clearly not really want to be there, but they think they're supposed to. Like, this is what they're supposed to do. And you see that from both of them. Like, Nathan kind of moved them out there because he thought it would be, you know, best for his wife and best for his family. And then when he could really have a go at it and... And she's still trying to, like, work her investment job upstairs with crappy rural internets. And an interesting little visual cue I thought Stanley added was, unlike a lot of farm settings, they have giant halogen lights everywhere outside. So they just <laughs> created light pollution out in the middle of nowhere. Because <laughs> they don't really want to be, be out in the, in, in the woods and the sticks. Like, Nathan's making gourmet duck dinners and shit. Like, they're not roughing it. They don't want to, but they, they're they all, they're putting on, like, this face of it, which really plays into the, the possession aspect of everything. Yeah, that's what, why I love that moment in the ending where Nathan is just sitting on, in his barca lounger, like, nothing's happening, being a dad, yep. with his imaginary family surrounding him. Except for the boy who lives in the well now. <laughs> As teenagers are wont to do. Haven't, I mean, we've all been there and down in the well. By the way, I'm obsessed with the fact that that kid put on goggles before dying like he's Rainier Wolfcastle. It's such a weird little touch because it's, it's almost like it reminds me of Jaws when Quint grabs that machete that's been hanging on the side of the boat that we very clearly saw placed there. And then doesn't kill the shark or do anything to the shark with it. He just gets murdered. It's one of those touches where it's a bit of a red herring. You get excited like, oh, they introduced that item earlier. This has to mean something. And then, you know, in his last moments, he puts the goggles on and they still gets destroyed in the well. Yeah, the goggles do nothing. He, he just wanted to die steampunk. <laughs> As we really. all do. That's actually a deleted scene. He just ends up being a bunch of gears inside the well. <laughs> it's, it's like, uh, you know, the Necronomicon ritual amounted to nothing. That was curious to me, too, though. We see a lot of witchcraft in this movie, but none of it has any discernible effect, at least to my eyes. Maybe I missed something in the story. Yeah, but Stanley's know. been caught up in a bunch of weird supernatural stuff, <laughs> the way he tells his stories, where you have to believe he believes in some level of witchcraft. Oh, absolutely. So it's kind of surprising this story yeah. doesn't utilize it much. Other, than, Well, I shouldn't say doesn't utilize it. It's definitely all over the movie, but it doesn't look real in the movie. It's just people practicing stuff that doesn't kick in. And what's curious is this is, you know, in Stanley's mind, this is Lovecraft's world. Like, right. all the Lovecraft stories take place in this world that Colorado Space is currently happening in. Which means, like, that Necronomicon is the Necronomicon. That's apparently all a mass publication in paperback. Which I think is genius, because, no, that's, what, that's how it would be now if this was in modern times. It oh, would yeah. be the fucking paperback version of the one Lovecraft wrote. Fucking, of course. <laughs> all the bad guys were like, why did we break into all those libraries? We could have just waited like 30 years. I have an ebook version of it now. I don't even have to leave my house to do unspeakable evil. This is why the disclosure movement is so important, Cody. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it means like all of this magic works like in the world of this film. And it does nothing against this alien threat. 
So I don't know if that's a subtle thing of of Stanley kind of playing the bigger Lovecraft world of going, this is how out of the known terrestrial landscape this thing is, where even these deep, dark, black magics have no effect on it. Like, you are not safe in any way. And there's also the factor of, like, it's never 100% clear if Lavinia is doing that of her own volition or if that's, like, a side effect of uh, the meteorite's influence. Yeah. It's done to make things worse. There's so many ways you can take that. Yeah. There's a couple of points in the movie that are a little unclear to me, which isn't surprising considering we're not supposed to truly understand what this is. The villain is some form of living color. I mean, it's just not of our world. We're not going to grasp it. But one of the things that threw me off was we see down into the well, there's an egg that hatches and there's a weird bug that flies out. And later on, we see the the color out of space is, is, is a color that's reaching around. And it threw me off because we had that egg hatch and a bug come out. I didn't know if the movie was trying to say that it was mutating bugs, if the bug is a byproduct of the color trying to make its own form of life. If it was like, that is the color in physical form, I didn't quite grasp what that was supposed to be or if I was just overthinking it. Not that that's a flaw, it's just probably part of how the movie is supposed to make you question everything. If I remember correctly, in the short story, it's very much a a similar case where there are irradiated animals and insects, but it's not entirely clear if uh, they came from the meteorite or if they were just infected. Yeah, yeah, there's we there's a mutated animals several times throughout. This one just lost me because it was. Eyes. Yeah, this this was inside the well, which weirded me out because at that point that's where the color was living. The world so, may never know. It's also worth noting that there's a big difference between Stanley's interpretation of the color, not even really interpretation, but and how Lovecraft played the color in the in the short story. Unlike a lot of Lovecraftian creatures and, and enemies. The color was never truly malicious. Like, you never really got a sense of it, how cognizant it was or to, what, why it was doing what it was doing. It was just affecting things. It de- didn't necessarily seem to have any kind of consciousness, or if it did, it was beyond us. It never seemed to be reaching out in any kind of uh, malevolent, malevolent way. Where Stanley has turned it definitely more into a traditional Lovecraftian creature where the color is acting malicious, like it's reaching out in a malicious way, where it's infecting the family in ways that are specific to each member, where it's going out of its way to do harm and changing things for the purpose of harm. There are some environmental things that happen, of course, that are just from the color being around. And then you get the, the glimpse Lavinia gives of where the color comes from. That is very Lovecraftian. That's not really connected to the color in any way in the book. But now the color is connected to a greater cosmic mythos of possibly Lovecraftian gods. Yeah, going off the idea of greater Lovecraftian gods, how do we think this is going to play out? Because apparently Stanley has the go-ahead to make two other movies in some sort of Lovecraftian trilogy. I'm uh, my assumption here is these will be distinct stories in every way other than they're set in the same world and they're just going to be different Lovecraft adaptions like I think the next is supposed to be the Dunwich horror. Yep. Mm-hmm. A third one is a mystery because he doesn't mm-hmm. want somebody to scoop it out from under him. Someone is sitting on the rice of Charles Dexter Ward and he's just pissed off. It should be mine. I'm just curious to see how we think Lovecraft is going to be evolved from this point. I mean, in, in this movie we already got the stuff like the weather forecast showing Arkham and all that kind of stuff in his mouth. So we get the sense that there's the greater world that is out there. We already saw the Necronomicon in a paperback in this version. So he's hinted at a lot of the big mythology pieces to Lovecraft being out there. Yeah, I don't know if Stan... I, I don't feel as if Stanley's going to try to... is going toward the direction of telling it one big story. Just this is Lovecraft's world. It's more of like, you know, like a... It's, it's Stanley's version of, you know, Fulci's... Uh, trilogy or Carpenter's trilogy where they're just spiritually connected. Just in, Stan- in Stanley's case, they're actually all in the same world. So there's probably going to be like tiny connections the same way. There are tiny connections in a lot of Lovecraft stories that don't directly tie into the greater Cthulhu mythos. You're trying to tell me there won't be a post-credit sequence where uh, like Tom Cruise shows up as a mummy man who has to unite monsters to fight monsters. I would love if Stanley directed that. 
<laughs> the Dark Universe is back. Shut up. Yeah, he, he's a, he said he's apparently going hard with the Dunwich Award, considering how hardcore his color out of space was. I'm very, very curious. God, this, I cannot get over how uncomfortable virtually every scene in this movie is. The level of uh, visceral or like, I, I honestly wasn't expecting, like, even Stanley has never gone that hard with his previous films. Like, as intense as hardware is at times, it's still, at the end of the day, a fun, grimy movie. There's nothing fun about Color Out of Space. No. And it's such a mix of things where it's between, you know, extreme body horror and the alpacas all fused together and then just someone vomiting. I love how Stanley's obsession with large, lumbering creatures moving in a spindly fashion. <laughs> also, were you impressed Stanley just said, fuck it, and recreated the shot from the thing with the alpacas? <laughs> yeah. Which felt almost like, I don't know, to me it was almost like Lovecraft did it first. <laughs> I think Maybe. That but I thought the same of... thing. It was very much a The Thing type moment with the alpacas. And even beyond that, uh, this was almost like the uh, the Thing prequel remake, whatever you want to call it, when it got to the spindly mother monster. Oh, yeah. But done better. Practical. Yeah. yeah. What's crazy is there is CGI assistance in there, like in a lot of shots of the boy's head. I know the, uh, I believe the first reveal of the boy's head is CGI. You could not have told me that. Like, I assumed that was 100% practical. Yeah. They don't linger on a lot of shots too often. I think that helps. You don't have time to adjust and find flaws. It moves pretty quickly. What's well, bonkers to think this is a $6 million movie and only $3 million of that actually went towards the movie itself. This is a no-budget movie that really does not feel like it. Oh, it's that beautiful. was the impressive thing. They, uh, they allowed Stanley some amount of freedom here. Just thinking, okay, we've got a guy who hasn't made a mass-release movie in like, what, two decades almost? And the color out of space starts slow. We don't really have a jump in this movie for a pretty good amount of time. And it doesn't start like a normal horror movie where you know there's something unsettling going on and that you should be afraid. The characters aren't acting afraid for no good reason before the threat shows up. The movie plays it pretty straight and takes a leisurely pace without going to like slow burn horror. I, I'm kind of impressed that they picked up Stanley and just let him do his thing. Yeah, I wish more studios would do that. Just say like, Here's a reasonable amount of money for a modest horror movie. Go bonkers. It's like an extreme <laughs> version of what Blumhouse is doing. I mean, Blumhouse movies are still like five million bucks, too. So they're about in the same neighborhood as this. Oh, yeah. I see you, Invisible Man. <laughs> also, I, I was fascinated to learn that a lot of that structure apparently comes from Stanley just being a huge fan of Toby Hooper. Like, he completely cites his Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies as a gigantic inspiration for how he deals with structure. I, I definitely feel that with color. That is a very Texas Chainsaw 1 kind of uh, kind of tempo. Yeah. With just little things being wrong and then adding to big things and big things and big things until the third act is just an orgy of madness. That's what's like so magical about Stanley is he's... He's an orgy of madness. No, he, he is. He's like the most interesting person alive, and he's so fucking brilliant and strange, and like you don't know how he's real, but also he loves like really schlocky weird stuff. The same shit we do, fan. like we like. Google gobble, one of us. He was a big fan of Underwater. Yep. That was weird, yeah, hearing a director be like, Underwater, oh, that was fun. It's like, oh shit. He was one of like the eight people that saw it. We could have been in the same theater. I had, I don't know if you had this experience watching it, but I kept turning to my girlfriend and saying like, this is a movie made by a 90s director who has not seen a movie since the 90s, but he's using modern tools. And that's really fascinating. So I was very shocked to learn, no, Stanley totally loves modern <laughs> He just it was weird, though, watching the intro of this movie 
And my expectation walking into this movie was, oh, this is going to look like something from the 90s. Like, I just assumed Stanley's skill set had not changed at all from the last time he made a major motion picture. And then you get into this one, it's like, oh, no, he is using all new tools, and this feels like a movie that was made in 2020. Yeah, he's kept up. It just threw me off. Like, I didn't have the expectation. I thought it was like opening a time capsule, but I was very wrong. Yeah, I was curious how it was going to go, but yeah, Stanley's just a fan of everything, so... It's, it's interesting. He's so smart, but he's not snobbish. Like, he, he, he sees the infallibility of the philosophy books that he's also a big fan of. There's no real difference between that and, like, Marvel movies, too. Like, that's what's kind of cool about <laughs> Stan. Like, and, but what's interesting is almost, te- like, ten minutes into that movie, it was like, this is totally directed by Stanley. I can tell by the way the camera's moving. Oh, yeah. Or that's like, that was awesome to me, like, as a fan of Stanley is... Oh my god, Richard Stanley's directing a movie. Like, that's what made it feel real to me. And then, you know, No Flesh Shall Be Spared, spray painted across somebody's fucking bedroom wall. <laughs> Never forget. That quote that's there because Dylan McDermott was really into the Bible when they were making it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, shit happens. Yeah, that's why I love things like, I love that first breakfast scene where you see them uh, as a family unit for the first time. That feels like something you wouldn't see in a modern movie that feels very 90s in its sensibility but it doesn't feel out of place at all yeah it feels like it's coming from a director who knows oh yeah we actually can just slow down and just spend time with the family eating breakfast in the first act of this horror movie and just see them be weird and idiosyncratic towards each other and no one really comment on it because they're all used to each other's bullshit yeah you definitely like, don't see that kind of thing anymore. Yeah, like, I love how there's virtually no acknowledgement by the characters their se- themselves that their daughter is, like, an 80s fan- fantasy princess who practices witchcraft in the woods and wears a cloak. There's that sense of familiarity between everybody that I really love. But when you name a kid Lavinia... Yeah, you're, you're walking right into that. It's a mouthful... She is going to collect some crystals and meet a, marry a dude named Kyle. <laughs> and that's the uh, true color out of space. The true color out of space is the roast we made along the way. That's dumb enough to be an ending for me. Folks, if you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find more of Box Office Pulp on boxofficepulp.com. We have our own site. It's amazing. It, uh, it's a website. Uh, but we're also on iTunes, Stitchers. Uh, Stitchers. Stitchers! Like Stitchers. Like yeah. Stitchers for the internet. Uh, Stitcher yeah. iTunes. <laughs> it's the coolest around. Anyways, if you go on Twitter, you can even find us. Just check at Box Office Pulp. We'll be around. Say hi. We're mostly nice. Except for when we roast people named Levitica. And if your name is Levitica, please drop us a line on Box Office Pulp on Twitter. We'd love like, to oh, meet no, you. Brian hates my home country. The same kind of thing. <laughs> Box Office Pulp hates my birth name. <laughs> also, by the time this episode posts, I will most likely have a review for Color Out of Space in the written form on HorrorMoviesHub.com, where you can find all of my various ramblings. I check it out. And as always, you can check me out on YouTube at Comic Macabre, uh, my YouTube series where I look at the weird and esoteric uh, splinters of horror and comics media. And folks, uh, you know, if if you feel lonely and bored, you can go on Twitter, look up at Box... What, uh, fuck, I even screwed up my own handle. Never mind, it's not worth it. Go on now, never... stupid old internet. Get out of here. Get out of here. I've never promoted my own brand again. Ugh, fuck it. Ugh, terrible, terrible outro. Awful. Hey, Cody. Just the, just the worst. Uh, folks, folks, before you head out, I'd appreciate it if we could all just take a moment of silence to gather our combined mental strength in an attempt to wish Wes Craven back from the grave. I'll keep the time. Let's just take a moment. Okay, that'll do. Get the hell out of here and hope we have Scream 5 by next spring. And like that, he's gone. My bones! I'm disappointed we didn't find time to talk about the color out of space. It was very nice. Uh, it's all great to me. Oh, God, I didn't really think about that. You, like, 
Was that not like not on the spectrum? You can say. Oh no, no, it's fine. Uh, uh, it was all very pink. It seemed just like a pink to me. That's not that far off. Hearing Stanley talk about the the reasoning behind why they went with that shade is fascinating. Well, I think he said it was kind of like a magenta, which isn't a real color, which is why he liked it. Yeah, it like triggers something instinctual in you whenever you see it on like animals and fruit, because that's not supposed to exist in nature. Yeah, it's like a weird crossover. Your mind just fills in the blank like, oh, that shouldn't be that color. Let's make it something else. Which is something I think Lovecraft would be really happy with. The whole point of that thing being colors, because he got really into the idea of color spectrums. Mm-hmm. Well, Stanley, too, talking about the film, he's talking about, you know, if something other were to come into our universe, he compared it to, you know, like if there's a, a really low bass noise at a certain point, we can't pick it up. It's just not audible to us. So it has to raise itself to a certain frequency before we can go, oh, there it is. Or same with color, like it has to change its frequency before it lands into like the ultraviolet spectrum, or not even that because we can't see out UV, but into like, you know, the colors we can see. He was real big into that. He mentioned that in like three different interviews. It's uh, it's like the noise um, some 7-Elevens play to ward off teenagers. <laughs> you want to hear the most annoying sound in the world? I just start playing Bruce Springsteen. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show.